If you've got a Bible, open to Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Verses 18 to 26 is where we're going to pick up. We're going to read those texts together this morning. It'll be on the screen for you behind me if you don't have a paper copy, electronic copy, or if you don't have it memorized um, in your head somewhere. So um, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. The text says this as Luke writes. He says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now we're in a series of messages entitled Follow Me. And what we're taking a look at over the course of the next couple of months is this issue of what it means to come after Jesus as his disciple. What it means to follow him. Jesus issues that call in the scriptures over and over again and we want to try and drill down on what it means to follow Jesus. Last week we said that a the, the discipleship, the activity of discipleship is this. It's ordering your everyday life around the message and mission of Jesus. I'll say that again. Ordering your everyday life around the message and mission of Jesus. And what we saw last week was that as we come after Jesus, you have to first know who it is that you're following. Peter says he's the Christ of God. In other words, he's the anointed one of God, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the one who speaks truly the words of God to us, mediates the relationship between us and God as the high priest who offered the sacrifice and was the sacrifice that he offered up. And as the true king who would rule and reign with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's who it is that we're following. And because of his identity, we said he reserves the right to define what it means to follow him. Because of his identity, he gets to set the terms of discipleship. And so we said last week, the first term that Jesus lays out in the text in Luke chapter nine is this, that if you're gonna come after me, Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me as my disciple, you have to side with me against yourself. When he says, let him deny himself. So you side with Jesus against yourself. There's a self that's doing the denying and a self that's being denied. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also lays down a second term of discipleship in the text. And that's what we're gonna take a look at this morning. Jesus says, not only am I calling you to deny yourself, but I'm calling you to take up your cross. I'm calling you to take up your cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and professor of a seminary, underground seminary and underground church in Nazi Germany. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And there was a section of that book in which he speaks of the cross that is laid upon every Christian. I want you to hear what he says about it. Bonhoeffer writes, he says, the cross is laid on every Christian. It begins with the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of the encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Since this happens at the beginning of the Christian life, the cross can never merely be a tragic ending to an otherwise happy religious life. 
When Christ calls a man, Bonhoeffer writes, he bids him come and die. So what does it mean to come and die? To take up our cross, come and die, and embrace the call of Christ. A couple of things I want us to see this morning. The first one is this, that if you're gonna come and die, if you're gonna take up the cross and follow Jesus, then it means that you give up on your self-improvement project approach to God, right? We've all got a little self-improvement project working in our lives, don't we? Right? There's, there are many of us um, who have an upside down understanding of what it means to come after Jesus. Because when Jesus says take up your cross, the cross in Jesus' day was not a piece of jewelry. Right? It wasn't a little gold chain you wore around your neck with all kind of decorations and sparklies. Right? It wasn't jewelry, nor was it wall decor, so you didn't plaster them all over the walls of your home. In fact, it was a sign of shame. It was a picture of rejection. It was an instrument of crucifixion. So in Jesus' day, when he says come and take your cross, what he's saying is, in the same way that criminals picked up their crossbeam and carried it to the place of their execution, knowing they were headed toward their death, Jesus says, I'm bidding you to come and die. See, many in North Texas Christianity have a perspective of following Jesus that looks like this. They think that coming to Jesus means they're gonna come to Jesus and Jesus is gonna just tweak a few areas of their life to make them the best version of themselves they can possibly be. Right? So Jesus is going to tweak their marriage a little bit to make them the best spouse they could possibly be. Jesus is going to tweak their parenting a little bit to make them the best parent they could possibly be. Jesus is going to tweak their finances a little bit so that they can live securely in ways that don't require them have all their needs met. Jesus is going to tweak their relationships a little bit so that they can have fulfilling relationships with other men and other women in their lives, have, have really, really good friendships. Jesus is going to tweak a few areas of our lives. But Jesus actually says, if you're gonna come after me, the call is not to come after me and have your life tweaked, but to come after me and have your life terminated. See, Jesus says, come after me, not so that I can tweak a few areas of life, but so that I can slay you and raise you. So that the old man can die, the old woman can die, and I can raise a new one in their place. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 22, verse 20, whenever he says, for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says, my life has been terminated and now Jesus is living in me. Jesus is living through me. And so I don't have this self-improvement project of tweaking in view any longer, but I've been terminated and raised to have this new life. And it means this for you and I. It means that our identity is now wrapped up with Christ in God. So that our identity is not one who has achieved standing with God through all of our effort and all the tweaking and fiddling with our souls. But our identity is not one as one who's achieved standing with God, but received it on account of Jesus' work for us. He's put us to death and raised us to life. Jesus says that is the starting point of coming after me and taking up your cross. It's dying to North Texas Christianity that says, if Jesus could just tweak a few areas of my life to make me the best version of myself I could possibly be, and Jesus says, no, you've got it all backwards. I want to kill you and raise you and give you new life. And so that's the starting line, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there, because I want you to consider what the activity of taking up your cross involves. Last week we said that if you're gonna come after Jesus, you have to side with Jesus against yourself. This week Jesus says, if you're gonna come after me, you have to serve me instead of yourself. So you side with Jesus against yourself and you serve Jesus instead of yourself. 
Look at what Jesus says in the text whenever he calls us to take up our cross. Now, taking up your cross is not passive resignation to the difficult and challenging and frustrating circumstances of life. See, we use that terminology sometimes, don't we, whenever we're facing challenges or we're facing frustrations or we're facing difficulties. We're like, it's just, brother, it's just your cross to bear. Sister, it's just my cross to bear. You know what I'm saying? Listen, we, a couple of months ago, we adopted this two to three-year-old Jack Russell Terrier mix, brought the dog into our home. Now, the dog came with some baggage, right? I ain't gonna lie. So it was in a house fire, had puppies in the shelter that it was nursing right before we adopted her. The puppies went away, and so we adopted her, brought her home into our house. Now, the dog has one of the most docile temperaments I've ever seen in my life. Right? She would just roll over, let you do whatever you want to. My daughter, my six-year-old daughter, picks her up and carries her around the house like a baby doll everywhere she goes. She's only about 20 pounds. So my six-year-old's just walking around the house with her everywhere. She's, she, my, my daughter's come up with this mentality. That she wants to nickname her Oreo because she says she looks like a cow and a fox and a rabbit. Because she's got the markings of a cow, she looks like black and white splotches all over her. She's got the ears of a fox, and she jumps about as high as a rabbit does. She just leaps up high into the air. Now, a part of the issue with the dog, no matter her temperament, is this, is that she's got severe separation anxiety, and you can see it every time we leave the home because she begins to whimper, and she begins to whine, and she begins to bark, and she follows us to the vehicles trying to jump in and go with us wherever we go. Now, part of that separation anxiety led to the first month of having this dog in our home, of constantly coming home to her having urinated and defecated all across the house, right? And so there's poop and pee everywhere that we're cleaning up constantly every time we walk in the front door, right? The carpet cleaner machine's running, right? Every time we got spray, we got towels, we're soaking stuff up, sucking stuff out of the carpets, Right, And so it's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating, smelly and inconvenient, but that is not the cross that I have to bear. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about nagging in-laws here, right? It's just my cross to bear, you know what I'm saying? Jesus is not talking about a difficult boss. He's not even talking about chronic diseases or tragic accidents or wayward children. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about passive resignation to the difficulties, challenges, and frustrations of life. What Jesus is talking about is active participation in the mission of God. So I don't just resign myself to all the challenges circulating in my hemisphere, but what I do is I actively participate in what God is doing in my community, in my nation, in this world that he is redeeming as he's drawing a people to himself out of all the peoples of the earth from every tribe and nation and tongue to make a people for his own possession, that I'm actively engaged in participating in that, not passively resigning to all the challenges of life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. See, when Jesus took up his cross, he did so to come and serve. In fact, Jesus will say that in Mark's gospel. Whenever the disciples are up in arms about who it is that's gonna sit at Jesus' right and who it is that's gonna sit at Jesus' left when he comes in his kingdom, and so James and John go to Jesus, they ask that question, the rest of the disciples hear that and they're indignant about it, and Jesus says, listen, I as your master, I did not come to serve, or to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I came to serve you by laying my life down for you. 
And the way I laid my life down for you was by taking up my cross in your place and going to be stretched out and crucified so that my perfect life and my gruesome death, that I would live the life that you could not live and die the death that you deserve to die so that God would accept you not on the basis of your merits but of mine. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. And listen, for those who embrace the call of Jesus on our life and they come after him, Jesus says, take up your cross, active participation in what I'm doing in your life, in your home, in your community, in your city, in your church, in your country, and across the world. It's active participation in that. That's what Jesus' call is whenever he calls us to take up our cross. Now Luke's gospel is the only one of the gospel accounts that adds this little adverb to modify Jesus' call and he says daily, daily. And what that does, listen, is it shifts the emphasis from a one-time decision to a daily way of life. So that daily I'm choosing to serve Jesus instead of myself rather than serving myself instead of Jesus. Daily. From, it moves it from martyrdom to this sacrificial way of life. Laying myself on the altar day after day after day after day after day. On January 8th, 1956, a man by the name of Jim Elliott who was a missionary to Ecuador. He and four other missionaries were killed along the banks of the Curie River as they attempted to take the gospel to the Aka Indians. Now, the, the, historically, encounters with the Aka historically ended in, ended in death. They were a very savage kind of people, very bloodthirsty kind of people. So from the 16th century conquistadors from Spain who came were massacred by them. The 17th century Jesuits who came down there were killed by them. The 19th century gold and rubber hunters who came into their territory, they were slain by them. So toward the end, but toward the end of 1955, the oil companies had stumbled on the fact that there was oil underneath their land. And so they were beginning to try to make their way to claim this land and trying to figure out how to deal with what they called the nuisance of these people. And so they sent parties in there to try and eradicate them. They actually even strategized whether or not military force could help push them out so that they could gain access to the rights of what laid beneath their soil. And so they began to, the Aukas began to at times hunt the oil company as the oil companies were hunting them. And so it was a very bloody affair. But during this time, Jim Elliott came, he was exposed to the plight of this people and the fact that they were without the gospel with no gospel witness in their history. They didn't know Jesus, never heard of Jesus. And so he felt a compelling burden to go and share the gospel and, and, and live amongst these people as one who would take Jesus to them. And so he and these four of the missionaries, they plotted and planned and strategized for months before they made the first drop of a gift saying, we come in peace. Their first encounter with the Indians along the bank of the river was with their little party and another little party of representatives from the tribe who came out to meet them. The second encounter they had with the Indians actually led to their death. And they were massacred there along the banks of the river. Now I want you to know his story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. It's an amazing, amazing testimony of God's goodness and faithfulness because following their death, even though the missionaries had guns on them whenever they were slain, they didn't raise them as they began to be attacked. They didn't shoot, they didn't fire a shot. And the Indians were astounded by that. 
And out of sheer curiosity, they invited Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth, whom he had married just three years prior, along with one of the other wives of the missionaries to come and live among the people. And so they did. They went and they moved in and they began to work with the people and share the gospel with the people and people, those of those Indians began to come to faith in Jesus because of the blood of these martyrs that had been slain along the banks of that river. Now I want you to know something, Jim Elliott didn't wake up one day and go, you know what, I'm gonna go die for Jesus. He didn't have this, he didn't have a death wish. He didn't wake up and say, you know what, these people are bloodthirsty, I'm gonna go lay my life down and be slain so that my wife can move into the tribe and she can share the gospel and all these Indians would come to faith. No, that wasn't his plan. He didn't wake up and say, I'm gonna go die for Jesus, but what Jim Elliott did day after day after day after day after day, and when you read his journal, you see it, is he didn't wake up and say, I'm gonna go die for Jesus, but he woke up and said, I'm gonna die to myself. Over and over and over and over. In fact, listen to one of the entries in his journal. He writes, I find I must drive myself to study following the ought of conscience to gain anything at all from the scripture, lacking any desire at times. It is important to learn respect and obedience to the inner must if godliness is to be a state of soul with me. I may no longer depend on pleasant impulses to bring me before the Lord. I must rather respond to principles I know to be right, whether I feel them to be enjoyable or not. In other words, he says, when I wake up in the morning, I drive myself to the word, whether I have the internal fuzzies to do so or not. Because I'm dying to how I feel. I'm dying to myself in order to walk in holiness and obedience and engage in the principles, he says, of the inner must in obeying his conscience. And so Eliot's legacy will go down in history, perhaps in this one sentence that he is perhaps most quoted for saying. He says, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot was one who understood what it meant to serve Jesus instead of himself, and every day he woke up and died to himself, which led him down a path where he would ultimately give his life for the Lord this Savior whom he loved, and that Savior whom he loved would then begin to save men and women who God had pressed upon his heart. Now, listen, Kevin prayed earlier and talked earlier about this. We think about the big monumental things, but I want you to know those things rarely come to us apart from daily walking in obedience, daily dying to ourselves. In Eliot's statement, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, leads us to the next point here in the text, because Jesus says this. Not only does he say, coming after means, means serving me instead of yourself, waking up daily, dying to yourself in your marriage, dying to yourself right, in your workplace, dying to yourself in the classroom at school, students, dying to yourself wherever it is that God has opened up doors of influence and opportunity for you to be, wherever God has placed you, dying to yourself, not serving yourself instead of Jesus, but serving Jesus instead of yourself. But also consider what else Jesus says. He says, serving yourself instead of me, it is spiritual suicide. It is spiritual suicide. In verse 24, Jesus says, listen, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now the word life that Jesus uses there is not the word bios for physical life, it's the word suke for your soul. The internal composition of who you are as a person. 
And listen to what Jesus says, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Jesus says that those people who spend their lives only ever serving themselves, he says eventually they will find that their soul begins to wither and it begins to dry up and it gets hollow. In fact, the most miserable people that you know are people who only serve themselves, aren't they? Some of the most miserable Christians I know are the people who feel like everything revolves around them, the church revolves around them, the activities revolve around them, life groups revolve around them, everything exists to serve and meet a need in their life. Because they're living to serve themselves rather than serve Jesus as opposed to serving Jesus rather than themselves. And so what happens is their soul begins to wither and it begins to dry up and it becomes hollow. They become less and less and less human as their aim in life is to serve their agenda, is to fulfill their purposes, it's to pursue their plans as opposed to the ones that God has laid out for them. So they don't side with Jesus against themselves and learn to say no to themselves. They keep saying yes to themselves over and over and over to every women desire that they have, they indulge rather than deny. And they ultimately end up withering. And listen, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. And here's why, because directions have destinations. Do you know that? That if the consistent pattern of your life here and now is for everything to revolve around you, you're the sun of your universe and all the other planets of people revolve around you to meet your needs and you only ever serve your agenda and yourself, what you're doing essentially is you're drinking arsenic, right? Slowly, every day. And Jesus says you have two choices. You can either die to yourself or you can kill yourself. Either way, we're all slowly dying every day. It depends on the, it just, it's the manner of death that's important, isn't it? And if you live to serve yourself instead of Jesus, here's what happens. You slowly die and your direction of life ultimately has a destination where, that, where you are free to serve yourself for the rest of eternity and live in hollowness in a place called hell. And Jesus says on the opposite, if, you, if you're Killing, you're, you're slowly killing yourself, but if you're slowly dying to yourself, then what you will find is that that's where life really begins. As you slowly die to yourself, and you'll find that you, as you lose your life for Jesus' sake, ultimately you're saving it. And you become a person who's filled with joy. And it's overflowing. Your soul doesn't wither, but it flourishes. As a tree planted by streams of water constantly in, in dry seasons and, 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 and tsunamis, right? In every kind of season, it's constantly soaking up water and it's flourishing and producing fruit. Why? Because you're living to serve Jesus and not yourself. And so your soul is flourishing and ultimately that direction has a destination as well. And if you're living for the glory and honor of God, then you will enjoy that for the rest of your existence in this life and the life to come. Directions have destinations. And Jesus says, serving yourself instead of me is ultimately spiritual suicide. Now I wonder, as before we go any further, I wonder, for, for those of us who are in the room, I wonder for us, if we have given up on our self-improvement project, approach to God, or if we just have continued to say, you know what, maybe if I find the right church, or if I find the right life group, or if I find the right accountability partner, or if I find the right mentor, then all these little areas of my life that I want to tweak to become the best version of myself will actually fall into line. Is that kind of still what you're searching for? Are you looking to be tweaked somewhere or terminated so that God can raise you?
and that Christ can live in you. See, if you're looking for tweaks, then here's what you're doing. You're still serving yourself instead of Jesus. But if you've been terminated, then God raises you to serve him instead of yourself. So how does this flesh itself out? Let's get, let's get real practical here for a moment this morning. Because what Jesus says to us is paramount and it boils down to, are you inhaling oxygen or carbon monoxide day after day after day after day? One will fill you and bring you life. The other will ultimately take your life. So how is it that we go about serving Jesus instead of ourselves? Here's, here's, I wanna say something to us corporately as a church, but then I wanna say something to you as an individual, all right? I wanna give a broad, paint a broad picture here, but also a very specific one but they both fall under this heading, and it's this, is that we have to be a church that exists in the city of fate and for the city of fate. And let me, let me break down what I mean by that for you. This week, I had the opportunity um, to travel down to southeast Texas. Um, I, I, they, the, the city of Port Arthur began to put out pleas for anybody that had a boat to come and help, uh, help people. And so I, I, as I was sitting there and thinking about a, a, this, this old, decrepit boat that I have in storage, God began to kind of push on me. And then a friend of mine texted me. He said, hey, do we need to get your boat and go, go down there? And I was like, well, I guess we do. And so um, we got it and we went down. So he kind of tipped me over the edge and we went down. And it took, to make a six-hour drive, um, and total driving time took us like seven to eight hours because of just the water we had to drive through in order to get down there. But whenever we showed up at the Walmart parking lot on Memorial Boulevard in Port Arthur, Texas, there, was, there, there were three people that we met that were, um, it was just pretty amazing. We met a police sergeant, we met a city councilwoman, and then we met a pastor and his wife. And, and, and the police sergeant's talking to dispatch about addresses that still needed people to get, get cleared out of their homes. The um, city councilwoman is, is talking to the pastor and his wife, to other volunteers who are standing there. Hey, these folks need help. Hey, these folks need help. She's on the horn calling all these different places, talking to the different shelters where they're trying to house people. But there was a pastor and his wife in their church that was at the center of the response. And that pastor's wife was so connected. She was, she had, they, had, they had big a big smoker barbecue pit out there in the middle of the parking lot. They were grilling up hot dogs and sausage and smoking brisket. They had folks over there cooking up jambalaya, boiling shrimp. People were just dropping stuff off, saying, do whatever you can do with it, right? And so they were just cooking whatever they could cook with whatever food they could get their hands on, and then they were dispersing it out to the shelters. But there was a church that was at the center of that. And I thought to myself, there is a church that is not only in the city of Port Arthur, but is for the city of Port Arthur. A church that rejoices with those who rejoice, weeps with those who weeps, mourns with those who mourns, and serves the city in selfless and sacrificial ways. They were there from early in the morning until curfew hit at night, trying to prepare food to get to the shelters to feed people, to get them to the airport, to get evac out of there. It was amazing to see how a church was at the center of that. Now, we may not have agreed theologically with everything that they would have embraced or affirmed, but what struck me was that they were for the city in the way that they served. And it got me to thinking about marks of a church that are for the city, not just in a city. There's lots of churches that meet in a city. But my heart for us at Redeemer is that we would be a church that not only meets here in the city of faith, but is for it. 
me try and draw a contrast for you in a couple of different ways first. A church that is for the city, or a church that is only in the city, it gathers in a location to occupy a building and is often irrelevant to the city around them because they are walled off from the natural rhythms of life in their city. See, the gravitational pull in most churches is to pull toward being a church in the city where we get to, get to serve ourselves, right? And so we, what we want is we want great music for ourselves. We want great preaching for ourselves. We want great programs for ourselves. And Jesus says, if you're gonna take up your cross and actively participate in what I'm doing in the world, then you cannot exist for yourselves. You must exist for this community that I've planted and placed you in. To see a church that is for the city isn't, in, isn't disengaged from those natural rhythms, but is engaged in them. It doesn't just gather in a building, but it goes from that building with hearts filled with love for the God and the people. It leverages opportunities to connect with people around her that God is seeking to save and sanctify because there are people here who do not yet know they are his. A church that is for the city is highly relevant to those who live near her because those people are interacting, they're serving, they're reaching out, they're investing, and they're inviting. They're connecting with people. The second way I'd, I'd contrast it to you is this way. A church that is in the city only is filled with the good, fine, respectable, and upstanding citizens of the neighborhood around her who whenever they look in the mirror in the morning, they go, of course I'm a Christian. I mean, my great-grandfather was a missionary, my grandparents, right, were, Pat was a pastor. My, my grandfather was a pastor. My parents were Sunday school teachers, right? Of course I'm a Christian. I was in the church every day being brought up. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I'm a Texan. Of course I'm a Christian. But a church that is for the city is often filled with people who look in the mirror and they say, I can't believe that God would save this. That God would save me. A church that is for the city is filled with I used to be kinds of people. In Titus chapter three, the apostle Paul writes to, to Titus and he says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when, but, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. A church that is for the city is filled with people who have a history. They have a rap sheet, and their past might make you blush. But God was gracious to reach down and rescue God was gracious to reach down and save. God was gracious to reach down and begin to sanctify and renew and restore and redeem in their lives. And so they say, I used to be but God. But God. Third, a church that is in the city only is good at pointing out darkness around it by gathering in their little circles and, and decrying the culture and condemning the culture and talking about, can you believe this? Can you believe that? And they just walk away shaking their head going, I don't know what this world's coming to. But a church that is for the city doesn't only point out darkness, but they, by God's grace, they're a part of pushing it back. They're a part of pushing it back because they're engaged in areas of need 
They're laying their lives down for people who are around them. And they've got people there who were just prayer requests a few years ago. In some life group, in some accountability group, in some, some, or somebody's family meal table, I want to pray for my friend Jimmy who doesn't know Jesus. And so they prayed for Jimmy for several years and God was gracious to save and bring him out of the darkness because there were people who were praying that the light of Christ would shine upon his life. See, a church that's in the city only can point out darkness from their pulpits and soapboxes, but a church that is for the city is used by God to help push some of it back. If a church exists to serve herself instead of Jesus, she will be in the city. But if a church exists to serve Jesus instead of herself, she will be a church that is for it. And the longer a church exists, the more that gravitational pulls us, gravitational pull pulls us toward being one that's just in. And listen, as one of your pastors, I just want you to know that where my heart is, I have no desire to be a part of a church that is only in the city. But by God's grace, my heart is for Redeemer to be a church that is for this city, for this community, for this county. But let me, and some of you are like, yes, that's a church I want to be a part of, right? Let's go. <laughs> but let me ask you this question. In your mind, is the church an institution, an organization that you just happen to be a part of, or is it a collection of arms and ears and eyes and toes and fingers and mouths and noses, a body composed of individual members this church will not be a church that is for the city unless her members say individually in my life, I want to be a, a, a son or daughter of God who lives for those who do not know they are his yet. That we would be a body made up of individual parts who are for this community that God has planted us in. Let me talk to you about several ways personally. I talked to you last week about a rhythm of fasting to learn to say no to yourself in small ways so that God would increase the capacity you had to say no to yourself in bigger ways to side with him against yourself. Here's a rhythm this morning I wanna to talk to you about as we close about how it is we grow in this capacity to serve Jesus instead of ourselves rather than serving ourselves instead of Jesus. And it's just that, Service. It's committing yourself to a particular body, to a particular people and saying, I want to serve there. I want to serve with them. I want to serve the community God's planted them in. It's service. Listen, let me, let me break it down for you three real practical ways. First one is this. About 12 months ago, God connected us with a pocket of rural poverty just 10 minutes to our north. We live in a very affluent community. No, there's no one who can deny that. But God connected us with a pocket of rural poverty 10 minutes to our north and God's begun to open door after door after door. They, inv they invited us in. The district school district invited us in, not us going, let us in, let us in, let us in. And so we begun to move towards that. And that pocket of rural poverty exists to a large degree because there are economic and educational discrepancies in the lives of those people who call that place home. And so what if God would burden not just the institution and organization, but the members, the body, an individual who would say, I want to help us organize in a way that could help 
with some of the educational and economic discrepancies and serve that pocket of rural poverty in Jesus' name, bringing light and pushing back the darkness because the gospel says that Jesus is coming not just to renew individual souls, but one day he's coming to renew everything, all of creation. And I wanna be a part of that and taste that here and now. Second way, what if, what if we've talked about this before in our life groups, that our life groups meet in neighborhoods and homes in different parts of our community, and we've talked about having an internal facing, inward facing activity, an outward facing activity. In other words, that we would gather for prayer and Bible study and accountability and fellowship with one another frequently throughout the month, but then we would, every four to six weeks, we would not just turn our backs on the neighborhoods that we meet in and say, man, good luck, guys. We're just gonna have a little holy huddle in this house for now until Jesus comes. But what if we would turn outward facing toward those neighborhoods in which God has situated us? It is by no chance or coincidence, it is not blind fate that you live where you live and your life group is hosted where it is hosted. That is not coincidence. And what if we would turn our eyes outward and roll a grill in the front yard and say, hey, up and down this street, come. We just wanna share some food with you and get to know you. And you begin to build relationships and you begin to find pockets of need in people's lives and you begin to move towards those instead of away from them. What if we really took that seriously, that God had planted us, not only as a church in this location, but your life group in its particular neighborhood, not just to be a rallying point for us to have Jesus pep rallies, but to have prayer gatherings and say, how is it that we can engage this neighborhood with the gospel? Not serving ourselves instead of Jesus, but serving Jesus and his mission instead of ourselves. Third, third, a couple of weeks ago, I, got a, I was contacted by a, a school here in our community, in this neighborhood right behind us. And they said, hey, we, we, want, we heard that you guys were interested in partnering with us and we would welcome that greatly. Here's a couple of ways that you guys could partner. And one of them was, we have some students here in our school who need mentors. And whether that's through tutoring that you can provide, whether that be through life skills that you can mentor them in, do you have any members of your congregation who would be willing to step into those kinds of relationships with kids who live in this city, in this community, and be a, pre- a presence in their life, or a, a mature adult presence in their life? And, and maybe, just maybe, God might use that to bring the light of Christ into a home that has been dysfunctional for years. It's not just a big institutional mobilization, but it's individuals who say, I'm a part of this body and God's burdened my heart here. I'm gonna move towards that. I don't wanna just show up Sunday after Sunday to serve myself by consuming great music, mediocre preaching, and some programs. But I want God, I wanna be used by him. I wanna serve him instead of myself and move towards needs that exist. question for us this morning as a church and you as a member of it is will we take up our cross daily die to ourselves have our lives terminated to be raised and used in God's mission as he is still seeking a people for himself
For some of you in the room, you may be thinking, man, that's great, but it sounds like here's what I gotta do. I have to, I, I have to take up my cross and then God will accept me. Like, if I serve Jesus, then God will embrace me. God will bring me in. I'll be a part of his family. But I wanna leave you with this this morning. That if you're gonna embrace taking up your cross and following Jesus in a way that does not lead to legalism, that doesn't lead to, I'm gonna achieve standing with God by my performance, whether I'm gonna receive standing with God through Jesus' performance, here's what you have to learn to see. You have to learn to see and savor the one who served you instead of himself. Again, in Mark's gospel, he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Are you living out of that identity, not to achieve that identity? Has your life been terminated and raised? One of the shows I've begun to watch recently is a BBC show, it's on Netflix, called Sherlock. And in season four, episode one, at the end of that episode, there is a a lady, spoiler alert for some of you maybe, there's a lady whom Sherlock has loved dearly. And uh, and, and one of the criminals they've been tracking down, she pulls a gun and Sherlock instigates her through his deductions and the way that he's speaking to her to pull the trigger. And his beloved friend, the wife of his partner, John Watson, dives in front of the bullet and takes it for him. Takes it for him. And as she breathes her last breath, dying on the floor, her husband and her husband's best friend are gathered around her and she's saying her last words to them. And in response to her taking this bullet for him, listen to what Sherlock says as he wrestles with the fact that somebody else has taken a bullet that was meant for him. He says, in saving my life, she conferred a value on it. It is a currency I do not know how to spend. And I want you to know that in saving your life, that Jesus has conferred a value on you, but it is a currency that he clearly tells us how to spend. See, look at the order of the text. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross for you to die. Therefore, take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say, take up your cross and follow me, then I'll go to the cross for you and die. Have you been living it backwards? If you have this morning, I wanna invite you to connect in room five. I'll be just outside these doors. You can take a left and you go out those glass doors there. I'd love to visit with you about that. Brian and and the band, they're gonna come and lead us in songs. We respond to what God has said to us this morning. My heart is it would be a church that follows him, that embraces his call in our life, that we side with him against ourselves and we serve him instead of ourselves. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your good news this morning that we, that we do not achieve a standing with you, God, but that we receive it through Jesus. And for those of us who have really been marked by mercy, God, that we've been recipients of your grace, God, that it changes our identity and we live as those who are spending the currency of your sacrifice by serving you instead of ourselves. God, would you make us a church, not just an institution, but a body of members who are walking in the path of discipleship, ordering our everyday life around your message and your mission as a part of your work in this world as we daily, actively participate
in what Jesus is doing, Father, your Son is doing by the power of your Holy Spirit in this community and to the ends of the earth. We pray it in Jesus' name.